This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also Billion Moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. Shane, you were part of three major acquisitions. So two as an employee, one as a founder. You sold your last company assessed for $50 million, and now you're building a messaging protocol for Web3. This is very exciting. But let's go back to a line that I heard from you in a previous interview. You mentioned that being young and lucky is the worst disaster in life. Can we talk more about this? Sure thing. It's great to be here. Um, you know, if I go back to when I was 20 years old and I was in college, I went to a college that you've never heard of. It's called Western Illinois University. It's in the middle of a cornfield in Illinois. And there was no real talk of the internet even when I was in college. And I got really excited by Facebook in 2005 and I started building apps and trying to actually use social data on top of email. So I was what I was trying to do is build a social email where you could see a profile photo of someone from Facebook or LinkedIn on top of your email. It's kind of how the internet works today, but back then it was super creepy. It was really weird to see um, a person from your real life and their online data about them aggregated together. Everyone freaked out. They thought their offline and online lives were very different. Facebook would LinkedIn were very different personas. And it was just a very like different time of the internet. And that led me to a guy in Seattle. And that was the one of the people who changed my life. And I met him online. I met his assistant actually. He was building a company called Mindbox. And I was, you know, still in college and just gotten out of college, trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I, I went to college for business, which is kind of a you know, a degree that no one knows what to do with. And I get out and he's like, what you're building is really cool. And I'm trying to build a smart address book and like smart email, like social CRM would be the type of name for it. And he's like, you should join us. You should, we should go build this startup together. And I was like, I don't have any money. I'm in Peoria, Illinois. Can you pay me? Like, what does that mean? I don't know what a startup is. And I had no idea what any of this meant. I didn't know what venture capital meant. I didn't know what raising money meant. I was like, I make $33,000 a year managing the QuickBooks of the local theater. You're going to pay me for this little silly widget I did with profile photos? And he really saw the future. He saw this vision of social data getting applied to business use cases, the internet becoming more personal and more real identity. And he really saw the future. And I, through the help of my brother, getting me to move to Seattle, ended up joining uh, to build a company called Gist.com. And... I just got lucky. I really looked back at it and TA ended up being one of the most legendary people in Seattle. He was working for Paul Allen, the founder of Microsoft. That's the inbox he was actually mining to build the product to find out more news about people in your inbox. Paul Allen wrote the first million dollar check. Brad Feld, who's one of the best investors from Foundry Group, did our Series A round. For two years, we worked just without really stopping. I mean, I look back and I'm just kind of like, I just started building stuff. I didn't know what I was doing. It was like blind, young ignorance mixed with like too much confidence. And so, you know, whoever gave me that, my mother gave me that or however I had too much confidence, but I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of curious uh, and really interested in figuring it out. Led to a $50 million acquisition from BlackBerry in 2010. And I remember the day it happened. You have this feeling of like, wow, we did this. And the next feeling is a young, ignorant feeling of, I think I know what I'm doing. And I moved to San Francisco. The next company was called Zarly. It happened really quick. Three of my friends convinced me to do it with them. I was a head of product and engineering. And I think the, the worst thing that can happen to you is when you're young and lucky, you think you know what you're doing. And I wasn't the CEO of Gist. I didn't lead the company. I really didn't know how to build high functioning engineering teams. I wasn't the head of product there. And because of the outcome, I kind of had this arrogant, egotistical chip on my shoulder that like, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing here. And I think it led to the greatest failure ever. Zarly blew about $42 million in under two and a half, three years, uh, raised a ton of money, tons of venture, lots of ego, lots of uh, like tension, my lack of self-awareness, 
led to just creating a culture that didn't really work. Uh, and so going through that was ended up looking back now, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. That early win really did open doors for me. It had a lot of benefits, but it had a, a blind little devil too that I think I wish I was more aware of at the time. It's funny, I still have, I'm back here, I have the original BlackBerry that when BlackBerry, oh, wow. when BlackBerry acquired us, <clears throat> one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. You can see in this, and this is the original. Oh, wow. Okay, nice. And it's the keyboard in the middle. And so when they walked in in 2009, 2010, we're getting acquired. We're trying to make the BBM social and we're going to basically rip BBM out and give it to everybody. So that was why they acquired us. So they saw the vision of WhatsApp and they talked about the iPhone and they made fun of it. And they were like, people still want a keyboard. People still want to type. And they had just gotten to this moment where they could use two fingers on the screen to copy and paste. And I remember in the meeting, I raised my hand and I said, hey, did you know on the iPhone that you could do this for the last year with one finger? And they're like, we're not allowed to use iPhones at BlackBerry. And that moment for me was a really big moment in my life history of the innovator's dilemma of when companies fail because they're blind to the competition and they convince themselves on some feature is novel and it can never be replaced. And it's some truth that actually doesn't end up to be true. And that's actually what kills companies. And that plus they never gave away BBM because they thought BBM sells phones. And if we give away BlackBerry Messenger, then it won't sell phones. And messaging isn't a big thing and it doesn't make any money. So why should we really give it away? Ultimately, WhatsApp was the largest acquisition ever. BlackBerry went from 90 billion to three in under two years, and it was the fastest decline of an enterprise in the history of like, humanity. And both of those things came true. The keyboard didn't really matter, and BBM was the most valuable product they ever had. Definitely. Wow. Funny story. So I study at University of Waterloo. Waterloo is the city where <laughs> RIM was based in. And I study nanotechnology engineering. Our building, Quantum Nano Center, is basically the full name of Quantum Nano Center is Mike and Ophelia Lazardis Quantum Nano Center. So that's the building which was donated by the founders of uh, BlackBerry or founder of BlackBerry. So yeah, for sure, that's awesome. I mean, they created something magic, and I think it's just a, a lesson in the the way things get disrupted is always because of that belief that we're smart and the belief that we know what we're doing and we have it all figured out, and that strong held belief usually is the one that kills us. Shane, the reason I started this with this question is because I love this question. I have personally faced this question. Uh, I went through this twice, but I, I got early wins once in eighth grade, once in university. And I thought that I knew how to do things. And I realized that, okay, I'm not special. You just put in the work. You just have to do the right thing. And that's how things happen. You are not special. So how did you handle when you realized that, okay, you're not special? What a relief. Like what a freeing thing to, to, to lean into. Um, but I think the real answer is that I started becoming, I don't know if it was like just my genuine natural tendency to be curious, but I think it was 2008. I started a podcast called ask and I just started asking people one question online before, um, that was something they never got asked. And so I'd ask some personal questions. It was before this podcast stuff. It's funny. We're doing all this fancy stuff. Now I was doing this over 15 years ago on my computer on Skype. On Can't imagine how it worked. Yeah. It didn't really work, um, but I made it work. And everyone thought it was really weird though. It's so funny now. It's like, this is the media format. Like this is on TV. It's on CNBC. Everyone kind of looks like they're, you know, in their house. Like I have this little background. And I remember like I drew the background on my wall 15 years ago and, you know, people would make fun of me and be like, oh, you're just like in your basement doing these little, you know, internet video things. Uh, and it's so funny to see like how far it's come. But that curiosity and meeting people that I never thought I could meet to ask him something I never thought I could ask. And every time I got off of them, I was so excited and enthusiastic and genuinely just fired up. And I always was given a perspective on the life or things that I thought about the world or how it worked that were fundamentally different from anything I'd ever heard. And it just compounded and it kept compounding to the point where I was like, I think we all just know a tiny bit about something and nothing about everything. And the more I got into just exploring how to be curious, how do you be present? How do you ask better questions? Every time I'd really practice asking questions in different ways, I would get more meaningful answers. And 
changing that up. I do think there's a skill of being curious, a skill of asking questions. Um, anyone can be curious and ask questions, but you can actually get better at it. And there are ways to do that. Um, and so I just leaned into it. I leaned into like, I don't know anything. Um, and I believe you can learn anything. And I believe there's so much to know. And so, you know, it really just helped me be excited about listening and learning and empathizing with everyone. Uh, and I think it really helped me build better teams, better leaders, and ultimately, you know, be able to kind of like think about the next phase of my life of always being about learning faster than anybody else, because I know that I might not have the answer, but I can go find out. And then giving that freedom and permission and confidence that I found in being able to say, I don't know to other people. There's a moment at Assist, my last company, um, this guy named Stefan, he's awesome. And he's one of our best designers. He grew up in Monaco. He's got the nicest watches, the nicest shirts. You know, he's got the, the buttons and all the stuff in his wrist. And, you know, he's so, he's looks beautiful. He's a, he's a beautiful human. And he would give presentations and he actually made original keynote slides for Steve Jobs back in the day. So you can wow. imagine this guy's presentations. They're unbelievable. And I'm a sucker for good design. If you pitch a good design in a keynote, I'm sold. And even if it's a terrible idea and it's wrong, you can convince me of it. So he would give these presentations all the time. And whenever he would trip up and I would ask him a question during that time, he could not say, I don't know. He was so afraid to fail or be wrong and not have this perfect polished pitch for everything that it was almost paralyzing in many ways. And I ended up writing into our values at Assist. Our number one value is curiosity. We celebrate what we don't know, not what we do. And like that value, I made people practice in meetings. And so I started having him practice and raise his hand whenever he didn't know something and say, hey, I just want to let everyone know that I don't know. And it was sounds cheesy and it sounds simple. And to this day, after working with Stefan for seven years, if I text him right now and say, what's the number one thing you learned out of all the stuff we built? We built the future of bots and messaging and we worked with Facebook and Apple and T-Mobile and Alaska, Airlines, all these big companies and cool shit everywhere and whatever. He'll say, I don't know. That's crazy. And to put that in your values of the company, that really, really puts it into perspective that, okay, how much you care about this. Uh, Shane, I have, the the best thing about this podcast is I get to research on video because the people who I have on the podcast, they there's a chance that they have appeared on podcasts before as well. So I love to learn from podcasts. There's two extra speed. Love it. For you, you have 10 years of content on YouTube. And I'm seeing that you have become way calmer as I have researched you over the years or I have researched you through the years. So what do you think putting yourself out on YouTube, your video content out there has done for your personality or how you think about things? Um, it's, it's a good question. You mean I've gotten way calmer now than I was then? I believe that you have got way calmer, yes. There was one yeah. interview where you were really talking about your obsessive nature, how you learn guitar by closing yourself in a room, uh, something like that. You worked straight 10 hours on practicing your guitar. I can see that you had a lot of energy then, or you had that, you were showing that energy. Now you are way calmer. Uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It could just be getting old um, and, <laughs> and tired. Uh, but no, I actually, I, I practice it a lot. I'll say there's a couple answers here. You know, when you're, when you're younger, I think you believe that you can will anything to existence. Um, and a lot of that, you need to create companies and go from zero to one and create things from scratch. The devil of that is that manic and obsessive tendency can have dark sides as well. And it can lead to massive burnout, kind of massive overworking, a lot of over drinking and, you know, kind of a lot of things that can lead to really high anxiety, a lot of extra stress, uh, and can have a lot of, you know, physical and mental kind of outcomes that aren't good. And then over time, though, all that manic energy for me was a lot of insecure anxiety. I was really trying to prove myself in a world where I didn't feel like I had actually done anything. And then externally, you have all these titles and these things added to you. But under the hood, you kind of feel complete imposter syndrome that actually, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, especially in tech and stuff like that, you all of a sudden you get casted into raising, you know, I'd raised millions of dollars. I was a CEO. I didn't had like, I didn't have a big exit yet personally as the leader of a company. Um, and I like 
struggled a lot with trying to be open and honest about what I didn't know while also leading and keeping us, you know, going in the right direction and then doubting and being insecure in that as well. Um, and I think that anxiety actually can man manifest itself in energy that looks like, wow, I'm really excited, but it's actually just very like spun up energy. And also alcohol, I think helps a lot with that. And, you know, I've been sober for about a year and a half and, you know, sobriety brings a lot of like presence and self-awareness and calmness in ways that you would have never expected. I actually feel like I'm 10 times more productive, hopefully more thoughtful and get a lot more done now than I did 10 years ago. But you start to understand that just moving really fast without really understanding where you're moving might not always be the fastest way to get there. Better sleep in general with being sober. For sure. And, you know, I think a lot of it just comes from these really deep insecurities that we have and that we're not able to address. Um, we don't really have the tools. We don't have the upbringing. And we don't really understand what we're not even telling ourselves. Uh, and the more work you do, the more you get into, like, kind of self-improvement work, understanding yourself, pulling back the layers, uncovering the mask, the more you do that work, um, I think it pays dividends that are amazing. And you learn to listen more. It's funny. You can say I'm a way calmer now. And to me, it means I'm actually paying attention because 10 years ago when I would do an interview, I would have this big list of questions that I'd come in the interview and whenever they got done talking, I was the person that you are now. And I would be doing the interview. I would always jump in with a new question or I would have my own story. Cause I wanted to tell them something about me and I want to let them know that I actually know that too. And my whole insecurity was trying to just let the listener and this person know that I'm smart too. And finally, someone told me that was like one of the, the founders of radio lab. Um, and he's like one of the, one of my biggest mentors. And he, he sat behind me and he produced our podcast on my last company. And he said, Hey, you're talking so much because you're so insecure that you need to be seen as smart when your job is just to sit there and listen and actually ask them more questions about what they already want to talk about. And he said, the secret to a great interview and anything, job recruiting, podcast recording, building relationships in a relationship with your partner is actually to do the research and prep and understand what you're going to talk about. But ask the first question and never get to the second question. He said, if you have an hour interview where you never get to the second question, the person you're talking to will be like, that was the greatest interview I've ever had. It's because you actually listen. And when you actually listen and you're that present, the feeling of connection people get is mind blowing. People don't feel it very much. He's like, what you're doing is you're jumping to the next question because you're on your agenda and you're not listening because you're just thinking about what you're going to ask next. You're not listening to what they're saying now. And I was like, holy shit. And when you start getting pro advice like that, that's like professional level shit. It's like that simple type of advice. And then I was like, I've never been present. I'm not sitting here just really connecting and listening to what you're saying. And when you get there and you get to that space, you start to want it more and you start practicing it more. And, you know, maybe, maybe I am, maybe, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I am a little more boring now than I was 10 years ago. And that's, that's all <laughs> that's good with me. I love that because this is something that I also read about. I also think about that. Hey, I don't want to be keep on thinking about the next question while you are speaking. I want to keep on, as you leave those breadcrumbs, I want to dive deeper into that, make it a better conversation. We definitely talked about this podcast. I'm curious. So you actually were chatting with the biggest guys, Simon Sinek, Gary Vee, and others. What have you learned from them? Being, like talking to them, being with them. It's an interesting question. I mean, Gary, I've known since... 2008 we were building gist when he was just the twitter guy um and so him and his brother i know aj as well pretty well and i've known them for so long and simon getting to interview simon sinek a long time ago there you know there's these 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 individuals are such great um storytellers but they're so different you know like a gary is such a different animal than a simon or a jason freed is such a different person than say like a david marquet the, the thing that I think puts, that, that I think about a lot is Gary's just been putting himself out there in any format since day one, and it just always gets better. And I think the thing to learn that I've tried to, you know, really learn is no one remembers when you suck. And just publishing stuff, even if it sucks, is how you learn 
so that people will remember when it's good. And you watched it. If you went and researched my stuff, my old ask interviews were horrible. When I was in my room in 2009, I, I was so nervous and so scared to get on a call with Gary. I think I asked Gary, like, why do I have fear? And he's like, uh, he was like chewing his gum out of his mouth. <laughs> he was like on his phone in an yeah. old office. They only had like six people in the office. He didn't have any money yet. I mean, this is like pre-everything. He's like, I don't know, man. Like my, my sister always asked me this and I'm like, just fucking do it, dude. Like just, you know, just like the advice, blah. I always say, look at the method, not the message. And what I get from most of those people and a lot of the people that inspire me is they just realize that we all have the fear to step out there and put ourselves out there. But that behavior of doing it and actually realizing that when you don't have an audience, the practice of putting yourself out there, going through the doubt spiral, going through that moment of getting judged externally when your parents think you're silly, it's kind of something new, and then doing it in mediums that everyone else is joking about. And that's Gary and I, like the thing that I resonate the most with that I think has been really helpful in my career is I've always done things on the mediums that everyone thought was a joke. And then the mediums that everyone thinks was a joke always ended up becoming something meaningful. And if it didn't, it didn't matter because it taught you how to create and tell stories in ways that did end up being like the future. And so like people, people would use Vine and they'd be like, well, you invested all this money in Vine. And I'm not even a big Vine person or a video TikTok person or anything, but like me even doing these podcasts, like, you know, feeling comfortable in this and doing these video podcasts and having it all set up and just knowing, you know, all day long now, I do five of these a day, right? Just on this kind of format, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years now. And so just getting into that kind of, uh, behavior where you're not judging early technologies. You're not like, well, that looks silly. And just going and doing it and going through that behavior of putting yourself out there to get externally judged is something that I think about a lot to try to help people not have the fear to like, well, someone's like, no one cares about you. That's the greatest thing. No one cares. Literally, no one cares about you. No one's going to listen to it. No one's going to follow you. But if you just keep doing it, that actually inspires you to keep going. Because one person that says thank you is greater than 10,000 people that say this is shit. And all you're going to remember is the one that says thank you. And that one thank you is going to be enough to get to. And that, that to me has always been the thing. And so when I think of those guys, they just put themselves out there. They really always have. And I, I was watching Gary when his content sucked, right? And now Gary is one of the best in the world at doing it. And he's literally just been putting it out there for you know 20 years. That makes so much sense. Like right now, Gary B also raised a lot of money with his, with his wee friends. And somewhere people are saying that, hey, all throughout it, WeFriends was the game Gary Vee was playing. It was not the marketing agency, it was not the content, it was WeFriends. So it's very interesting. We can go into that later on, but I'm curious, like what has podcasts done for you? What is the best thing about running a podcast? Go back to that though, Gary Vee yes. and WeFriends. Sure. Because you can't say something like that. I think Gary couldn't have predicted that all this would have happened and WeFriends was actually his play. But Gary builds communities of people online and audiences, and that's his jam. And he's never figured out how to monetize the audience except sell the service of how he does it, which isn't a great business model. You can build a big business, but it's, eh, that's a wrong statement. It's a, it's a, it's a low-margin business, business model that you have to operate with a lot of humans to scale. And he did it, and he did that on back of it. Putting himself out there and being in the early phase of technology to not judge any technology, to be the first person on Twitter and be the first person on TikTok and be the first person on Vine, because he's always first and he understands the nuances of what makes him work, he's in the right communities. And because he's in the tech communities, we bounce around the same groups. We then see the NFT thing happening. And what's the secret to an NFT? It gives value to members and communities. And ultimately, it creates economies and voting structure around communities. That's a fundamental massive shift in how the entire world works. And it aligns perfectly to how he sees the future and the world. And all of a sudden, all this creativity that he's been giving away for free, because digital content is shareable but not ownable, becomes ownable. That is the greatest shift that he's ever seen and I've ever seen. People still think it's a joke. Because we're in it, it's not a joke. It will change all of the way that people organize because it aligns incentives to not just be about sharing content, but owning it. And now he sees it. And now he sees how big it is before the rest of the world that yes, he's all in on vFriends and he's all in on the future of like membership communities, owning it, building them and building kind of an online audience that actually you're an owner and part of, not just a consumer. 
makes sense makes sense these mechanics were impossible before and now basically what gary v had in his mind he basically now has the mechanics to move ahead with it yeah but i get your point is like it's not about gary's such a visionary it's gary is in the weeds like i am to discover and be curious and open-minded enough to ask how could this change everything could it change everything if this worked out and i moved to yesterday to tomorrow what would what would happen and all of a sudden if you're early and right and go all in there's moments that all of a sudden wow gary's a visionary but the, how that in practice happens is being in the weeds this is very interesting uh let's let's go back to podcast so cool. what has the best thing uh what has podcast done for you what has running this podcast where you're talking to people and you're not expecting the views to blow up or maybe you're expecting what has that done for you podcasting i didn't even used to call it podcasting it was right. just uh youtube interviews or skype <laughs> interviews video we call it uh, what was it called uh vidler was the platform that gary v actually invested in that he told me to bet on and rob sandy the founder is now one of my good friends who's the founder wow. of vidler uh, okay. small world back then. And we all bet on Vidler instead of YouTube and it ended up being a terrible bet. But uh, it's funny to kind of tie the world together. I never did it to build an audience at scale. And maybe to be honest, it's one of those things in 15 years, I look back, I'm like, man, should I have invested more time in actually building the podcast and audience into um, a big brand? I don't know. And maybe I could regret that. I always saw it as a relationship tool. And that's the only reason I used it. And so the only reason I did the podcast was to talk to and interview and get people to talk to me that otherwise I thought would never talk to me to ask them questions that hopefully were unique and valuable to them because it was a different approach to then invite them to do other things. And I hosted these ask dinner series, these ask kind of summits. And I did all of this stuff over the last 15 years. And they were some of my favorite times in San Francisco, um, in Seattle. And I'd host these dinners that were 10 people. I'd hire like a news anchor or a professional interviewer to sit and like be the moderator at the dinner, no phones, notebooks. And they were really, really special, special evenings. And the podcast led into that. And those relationships from the podcast and those dinners, um, and ultimately kind of putting this content all out there changed my life. I mean, my co-founder of my last company was the founder of Geek Squad and the CTO of Best Buy for 10 years. I asked him to do an ask interview in 2010. He did it when he was in Minneapolis. He moved to San Francisco. I invited him to an ask dinner. He said it was the best dinner he's ever attended in his life. And he joined me as a co-founder to do my last company. And it was because of the podcast. And so the amount of life-changing relationships that have been started because of that are a ton. And so it has infinite value to me. People always ask me like, you've been doing this for 15 years and you've spent probably months or years of time on this thing. Um, like, does, have you made any money on it? And I'm like, I don't know. Half of my investors at Assist were because of the podcast. My co-founder was because of the podcast. My purpose, like how much learning and the amount I've consumed and got to like feel inspired by because of it, I think is priceless. So I always saw it that way, but... This is a moment where like, you know, I was early on Twitter. I was also early on podcasting. Had I really said, hey, I'm going to do a podcast. But instead, I was almost insecure at the time. I was kind of like, oh, it's just a little video thing I do on the side. If I had gone all in at the time, I bet it, you know, like, why why don't I have Tim Ferriss podcast? Like, Tim did the work. He went and built the podcast and that was his thing. And I didn't. So, uh, you know, I could like regret that. But I also, once I started building companies, it was hard to do a podcast. I kind of felt a lot of guilt doing a lot of interviews for the podcast while being a CEO and a founder. And I'd say I still kind of have that dilemma. And so I use it very rarely. Um, now I just do it once or twice a year when I feel like I really, really want to have a conversation with someone. Right. So you always look at it. Now we produce right. it and we do a lot more stuff. And I mean, if you listen to some of them, like the ones from recently are like, oh, sound well produced. And I, I have a great writer and producer and editor and stuff. But the old ones are just literally me on Skype, like as a kid. Right. I, I watched the podcast with Simon Sinek and... It's crazy that today, Simon Sinek and you, you look so highly produced. You got this good uh, look. And back then it's like, it's like two college boys talking to each other on a camcorder. <laughs> it was fun. I actually, I love it. I really, it was very endearing and everyone was very nice and approachable and just kind of brought everyone to an equal kind of just connection where 
you know, when I interviewed Simon Sinek, I, I still remember it. I was super nervous, but I was, I don't even remember where I was. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a very different, different space for sure. Right. So you never looked at podcasts as a way that, okay, I just want to go all in on podcasts. You looked at it as a way to help you do other things, help you build companies, bring on investors and do good things in the business world. I don't even think I was that smart at the time. I really just used it to feed my curiosity, probably my ego, to think like I could get someone to talk to me that I otherwise didn't think would talk to me. Um, and that's at the beginning how it started, um, for sure. But now it's like, I think of it the opposite way, which is how can I create a piece of content that will add so much value to the person I'm interviewing that there is a type of interview that they never get that is very meaningful to them and they can have it and promote it and do whatever they want with it. Um, and both of us build a connection because of it. I mean, David Marquet, the former head of the Navy, I flew down to Florida and did our last interview series in his house in Florida. And he's now still to this day, one of my like good friends and we talk and text a lot and, you know, talk, meet up. He came to Nashville. Uh, we met up uh, about a year ago. And so I, I really try to create something meaningful. And then the thing I ask about the podcast is, is this a conversation that I hope will last forever? And that's kind of the ones I choose to do. Now, I'm really curious, what have you learned makes a meaningful conversation that the guest would absolutely love to just push or just a message to all their friends and be like, hey, listen to this. When you get them to talk about something that they really struggle to talk about. If you can create the safe space where people will say something that they actually have never said and they really get choked up and they're like, I, you know, I don't know if I should share this. The ability to talk about things that we struggle to talk about is the entire secret to personal growth. And once you understand that that's what doing the work means, that is a hard thing for most interviewers to do because most people have a hard time doing it. That makes so much sense. I also believe like you have to build that trust, right? Like you cannot, like with the first question, you cannot go deeper into that into that particular phase where you are directly talking about vulnerable, vulnerable things, how to build some trust, and then you go into it. How do you think about it? Totally. And you have to share yourself. If you want someone to open up and be vulnerable, then you need to lead with it. Makes sense. So how were you doing these interviews and what were some of the best moments from your podcast where you thought that, okay, this was a good podcast. This was a meaningful conversation. The guests also felt that they shared something which was which is something they never shared before. I mean, David Marquet is the one that comes to mind. Um, he's He's been the person that I take as my leadership coach for the last eight years. Um, and he's an unbelievable uh, coach and mindset on leading. His book's called Turn the Ship Around. The other one's called uh, Leadership is Language. Both of them are phenomenal. And when I went down to his house in Florida, I asked him if we could get into conversations that he thought would be kind of touchy to talk about. Um, and I remember the question I got to ask him was, how do you even mentally prepare to kill somebody? Because they're in the Navy. He's the head of a nuclear submarine. And I was like, like, that's a really heavy, crazy question. And then the answer to that was even more profound, which led to him talking about as a child, like dealing with mental health and dealing with being an outcast and dealing with doing the math team and stuff and his parents thinking he was like a nerd in that. And then dealing with, like suicide thoughts and dealing with, and he says all this on, on, on the podcast and he's never talked about any of it before to the point where we had to like cut some stuff out. You know, he's like, I, I don't know if I should say that about my parents. And like, you know, you have like these moments like that, um, that are so powerful. And it led to like what his real purpose was. And, you know, he's like, listen, if you're really thinking about life and death, you have to believe that what you're fundamentally doing as a country. And he's like, we're in the military. We sign up for that is, a better way of life for the rest of the world and that everyone else deserves it. And so you have to figure out like, what are your moral justifications for doing things or not, or you leave. Um, and he got into like really deep thinking of just like how much of a struggle he has with it now. And he had with it then. And, you know, he took on that burden from everyone when he was leading the submarine, he was the only one that would hit the, the button that would launch missiles so that no one else would ever feel like that. You know, they took another person's life and just like getting into that deep of a conversation with someone and then going into their personal life and how they thought it all impacted it uh, was crazy. And then you get to the point where he's like, and then I want to tell you a secret, right? And then that is the actual stuff that's the gold that he's never said because he was afraid of what the military would say. And he said, the secret is I could never tell anyone that because if I said I had suicidal thoughts or I went to therapy, when you sign up for the military, they actually mark that on the, the application as a mental like illness. And therefore they might turn you down in the military 
if you've ever been to therapy. And he's like, that's so crazy to think people that are just trying to be their best selves and do like mental work are seen in the program of the application to our military to control guns and weapons and all this stuff that that is seen as a mental health thing. And therefore getting help and therapy and support and like dealing with that could be the reason they don't get in the military versus people that don't get help and hide it all and just internally struggle with it can be there fine. Um, and so, you know, he's like, I probably shouldn't say that, you know, but I want to put it out there now that I'm not in the military anymore. Um, and so just getting into those kind of conversations, you don't get there very often with people where you're able to really, uh, go deep. That's crazy. That's a crazy story. Wow. Uh, definitely this takes a lot of effort, a lot of trust building for someone to share these thoughts with you. Wow. Uh, I'm curious. So a lot of, we see a lot of podcasts out there. They lead with an emotion. Some could be that, okay, we are just two guys. We're talking about cool things. Some could be where you actually go into deep stuff. Did you always lead with that emotion that, okay, we're going to have some deep conversation or you also try to bring some fun into it, talk about some casual things? I tried to do both. I try to like make it fun. And I, I, even the deep stuff, I try to make it lighter, you know, but I've always steered to the personal conversation over the professional conversation. Uh, my personal just kind of default, I guess you would say, is just to always try to understand who someone is as a human. And then the work is just something we get to choose to do. And that's cool. And I love it. I love talking about ideas and what we can do and what we can create and all the things we can make. Um, but I really care like what makes you tick. Why do you want to keep working on this? Why do you even care about this idea? What is the thing that really in your childhood got you to be excited about this kind of work or sport or teammate or way of thinking, et cetera? And I really just like to understand why people do what they do and why people think what they think. Interesting. Wow. I'm curious. So you mentioned that you earlier in your one of your earliest interviews, you mentioned that you had an obsessive nature and that made you really go all in. How have you changed after, after the after understanding, uh, like post assist? Now that you are again a founder of XMTP, how do you think about that nature? That are you still obsessive? How do you approach that? Totally. I mean, I don't think you like get rid of things. You just kind of understand them and can have tools and frameworks to help control them. Uh, and I think I always have like a very obsessive tendency. I like I I learn something new. I'm like all in. You know, it's like I'm gonna go figure every single detail out and. Um, put it all together and make it work. And what I think you learn though, is that your strength can also be your devil. And so ob obsessiveness is like, okay, I can go all in, but you realize that things take decades to build that are meaningful. So then it's about, okay, but what was I always following up on time? Was I always having a good cadence? Was I doing weekly rituals? Was I making progress and always sharing the progress and really focused on the same thing for two years and repeating myself for two years? No, I don't think I was very good at that back then. I was really good at like lightning in a bottle, like make things happen. And then you're like, oh, but if you create new lightning in a bottle every week for a hundred weeks in a row, you create chaos. And you have to be able to understand the right times to like really go all in and make something happen. But when you have a team and you really need to go after something, all that works is something that is like repeated forever. And it's usually singular things that compound and everyone's aligned around it. And so now I'm always asking like, are we still focused on the right thing? Should we keep pushing this rock? And then what is the rituals by which we work and that I keep myself accountable to so that I always feel like I'm pushing the same thing forward and being obsessive over the same thing, which then gives me a little more like less obsessiveness. Cause I'm like, I don't have to get it all done today. Cause I know I'm going to keep working on this every day, the same thing for the next infinite time. Cause I also think in like 10 to 20 years now, instead of 10 to 20 hours, and I think when you start to think like that, it allows you to really have a long-term vision. And the thing that gets me really excited is being able to, with a team, do the little things and the little rituals week over week and show that small things become massive things is my favorite thing in the world. And a good example, we do this thing called the weekly dispatch. And the day we started the company, Matt and I, XMTP, I said, we're going to write this every Monday. We're going to just send it in this format. We're going to always say, what happened last week? What happened this week? What's news in our industry? How are we feeling about the progress? And a little note on how we're feeling from one of us personal at the top. And we're never going to miss a day. And I said, the most important thing about doing this is we never miss a day. And we just did our 60th one. And I said to the team and our whole exec team helps write it now and we send it out. And we were just talking about it. And they're like, wow, it's so cool to just look back and be able to read all 60 weeks 
since the day we started the company. And we did it for three months before anyone was even at the company. But practicing rituals and practicing the compounding nature of things, whether it's communication or product or customers or, or your core numbers, that's when the magic happens and having that long enough term view, I really feel like change my obsessive kind of tendencies so that I'm obsessive with a long-term view, but I'm not manically obsessive in the now. Um, and I think that also comes from just growth. You know, sobriety helps a lot. I think alcohol is a fuel of anxiety and anxiety and obsessiveness are kind of like the you know, same side of the same coin uh, or different side of the same coin. Uh, so a lot of those things add up into like, I think more focus, more clarity, uh, but still, still fighting the tendency all the time. You know, I drink. 25 LaCroix a day, you know, that's addiction and obsession all in the same thing. Definitely. Uh, culture became really important for you after assist. I read one thing that you left at 445 every day at assist because you didn't want the mothers in office to feel bad because you were staying late. Can you talk more about that? Uh, for sure. It's funny. Cause it's not that I wasn't working. It's, it, it actually goes back at Zarly. So before assist assist, I think the culture was, you know, what we really wanted it to be a lot of things we could have done differently or done better but overall i think we did a, a good job trying to build a different culture that really put people first and when i was at zarly you know i was 25 years old right i was sleeping in a condo with my buddy ian the cto and we had other employees staying there and you know it was a three-story condo and that's fine but when i was trying to hire executives and get them to work with us you know, when you're 25, you're like, what well, is all going to work? And you're going to go faster. And, blah, blah, blah. and it's, a, it's a lot of that, like, if you do more, you will get more output versus like thinking a little more, understanding where you're going. Direction over speed is kind of how I think about it now. Um, but I, I, I thought, you know, they'll just come down here and work and I, I'll be here till 10 o'clock at night. And then, you know, the executives are like, we have kids, we're going to go home and like, I'll get online later and I can keep working, but like, I got to go home. Um, and I think that lack of self-awareness really was something that I didn't understand when I was 25 and I would sit in the office till 10 o'clock at night. And there's a reason that everyone we hired was 24. Right. And that's fine until you want to like grow the company. And I just feel like, uh, it, it, it was aware to me that, Oh, I want to actually get there, do great work. But we were also creating an asynchronous remote first culture. And I didn't want people to feel the pressure of, Oh, Shane stay until seven o'clock. And then it's like a competition of who's going to stay and sit next to the CEO in the office. So I left so that everyone felt like they had the permission and they didn't have any guilt to go home, um, knowing that we would all get our work done and people would work on their own time and trusting people to do that. That makes sense. I believe a lot of this is really meta over here because you are also teaching me about how to how you had some really good interviews, how you conducted really good interviews. I'm not only we're talking about that, but I'm also trying to subconsciously apply that over here. So we might not be talking about XMTP a lot, but this is really interesting that we are getting into the more story focused questions. Uh, I'm really curious about this part. So you wrote the book Stop with the BS 10 years ago and the Amazon summary is beautiful. So it goes at age 23, Shane Mack was sick of the BS. He kept hearing about work, life, business, and careers. Three days after starting a new job in Seattle, he grabbed his notebooks, computer, and ideas and booked a round trip train ride from Seattle to San Francisco. The mission? To write a book in a 24-hour train ride and share all the notes he had collected so far in his working career and to cut the crap about what people were saying about business and careers. Did everything after this book fall into the plan that you laid out in this book, Stop With The BS? No way. Um, it's funny. It's a good example of what I was saying earlier about Gary and Simon and putting yourself out there. The benefits from the book were the behaviors and the work to put myself out there, to package it up, to create a product, to find an editor, to find a book designer. I actually got Mike Rhodes, who's the designer that did Jason Freed and we, all the, the rework books. He did my book cover. And so getting all of the things to, in order, getting the confidence to even think that at 23, I should put out a book is the craziest, silliest, what, are you kidding me? thing on one hand. On the other hand, it's like, what an accomplishment. How hard is that to package up 300 pages into a beautifully designed book? I had a picture out the window with a quote um, on what I was thinking in my head and a, a location in the book. And you can flip through the map when you flip through it. It's actually super cool. When you flip through the book, you can actually see the train go down the coast and back up. And you can basically feel like you're on this ride with me. And the, the best part about the book was the concept, not the content. The content is a 23-year-old who's too confident and completely ignorant thinking he knows what the fuck's going on in the world. 
I didn't have a fucking clue. But the concept of a train ride to write a book and you feel like you're on the ride as well as you're on this journey with me and we're kind of learning together and people ended up loving. It. I think it still has you know almost five stars and 65 reviews. I mean, it's crazy. I still get people till today that are like, I really love the book. And so it's like these little nuggets of wisdom. It was kind of where blogging was turning into books and all this trend was happening. But by putting yourself out there, that book led to so many things. That book changed my life because I, I met a guy named Eric Coaster. Eric Coaster was the founder of Zarly. He brought me into Zarly. That's how I got there. Eric then brought me to teach at Georgetown, a class about entrepreneurship. And so I would go out there and do one of the courses a semester while he was teaching. And then four years into teaching entrepreneurship, he's like, I think I'm going to quit teaching. Entrepreneurship isn't working. I think colleges just do it because they think it's cool, not because it's actually going to turn kids into entrepreneurs. And I was like, damn, I was like, this is Georgetown, you know, and he's teaching there. And I was like, you know, the, the things we did young in our career that actually were more like starting a business we're actually writing a book. And I was like, the the ability to package something up, everyone thinks it's kind of silly. People judge you. They're like, huh, why should you write a book? Who are you? And the question people ask is like, why should you write a book at 23? And the question I always ask is I say, it's the wrong question. The right question is, if you write a book about anything you care about, will you be smarter and more connected in that industry than if you didn't? And the answer is yes. And that's what college is supposed to do. And all of a sudden I was like, screw this. Going through that moment where you have to package it all up and put it out there is the most nerve wracking moment, just like it is when you launch a company. And I said, we need to teach people that behavior and that feeling that gives them the confidence to then be an entrepreneur someday if they want. But doing business plans and never having to launch anything or put anything out there or be judged is actually why entrepreneurship classes don't work. So I said, Eric, let's, let's change the whole thing. And three days before the course started at Georgetown, he was like, screw it. I said, make them all write books. I texted him. I was drinking in New York at a bar in uh, the Lower East Side. And I texted him and I said, you know what? If you're going to quit, you might as well go out with a bang. And he went in on Monday and he said, hey, students, it's a semester long course on entrepreneurship. I wanted to tell you that we're not going to start a business this course. All of you are going to become published authors. And they were like, what? And they were all confused. I called a friend of mine, Tucker Max, who's in Texas. And he did a, he did a book back in the day that was like kind of, he invented like bro culture, frat tire. But then he's now, you know, we've got a podcast, has a company called Scribe. I said, hey, if we get the A's in this class, people who get an A on their manuscript, will you fund to publish the books? And he was like, we'll, we'll publish them for you. So he donates some, you know, some money. And all of a sudden we thought every kid was going to drop out and like 10 more joined the next day. And at the end of this semester, 33 students, 16 of them got an A. And the book that I wrote on the train led me to the insight of what it made me go through to feel the feeling of what it's like to put yourself out there, that it's actually teaching you the skills and behaviors and the, the confidence you need to actually become an entrepreneur and publish a book is just like starting a company and recruiting people and building a team around you and publishing a product and all the economics and shipping something. And I was like, holy shit. And we published those students. I think all of those students ended up getting jobs because of their book, not because they went to Georgetown. And it's because they wrote about shit they truly cared about. We taught them how to do interviews, like you reached out to me. All this skill set you're learning, they did. And they learned how to tell stories. And they learned how to finish a product and believe in themselves more. And to this day, it's called Manuscripts. It's about five years old now. Eric is the CEO of it. And we've published over a thousand authors. And we've published over a thousand authors. And so many people have changed their life by writing a book for themselves to learn, not because you have some like end of your career wisdom to share. It's one of the most powerful things you can do to put yourself through the mindset behaviors and thinking that has nothing to do with if the book is good or not. It has everything to do of how you see yourself, believe in yourself and learn how to ship and put something out there and understand what it feels like to get externally judged and go through that process, which allows you to do it again, which is one of the most important things that people don't teach on what entrepreneurship actually is like. I want to do this. I want to. I want to write a book. Uh, manuscripts. I, you can meet Eric. It's the secret to manuscripts is it's community publishing. So what we didn't understand at the time is because it's a college class, it just is already that's how it is. But what we realized is it's always been you publish a book by yourself and you have some secret and you work with a publisher and you do it all alone. And because we were in a class, it wasn't that. It was a community. It was a group. And you're in a cohort. And all these words that now are like cohort learning and all these online words. Eric's been doing it now, and he realized that. If, if 500 authors in one semester now, we're doing like 300 to 500 at a time, right? You're in a group together now on the same schedule 
You're not competing with each other. You're not competing for the top 10 spots on the New York Times bestsellers list. Maybe one will get there, but like that's not the point. Everyone has their own unique story to tell. Now you have accountability and you have a community around you that help you actually get through the process and ship your book. And anyone in the world can now join manuscripts and do it, which is fascinating. And then like, that's, that's like, it. so for me, fuck my book. Like, I don't even remember what I wrote in my book. Um, people seem to like it, but it unlocked so many things for me that I want to give that to people at 20 years old to 25 to people at manuscripts are doing this at 60 to like change their career even. But I just want to give that mindset shift to people that I was lucky enough to experience from some crazy ass idea I had to ride on a hop on a train and write a book. That's crazy. And I believe you have even mentioned that it was less about the content, more about the more about the context. And that is what attracted people, the 24 hour ride. For sure. I think still to the day. It's like, if you flip through it, you can actually see the train going down the coast. That is crazy. That is crazy. Uh, wow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I definitely like, I believe like, I believe two years ago when I started this podcast, it was pandemic. I was just writing a lot. I was always thinking about, I was doing product management and product management. You have to always come up with unique insights. You have to tie together two really cool insights, come up with a third one and look smart. I tried to do that a lot. I loved it, but it also became super lonely because I was just researching a lot. And then I started the podcast to do that more collaboratively with my friends. Then slowly when we started getting founders on with every episode, the idea of podcast refined that, okay, what am I doing over here with my podcast? And I believe that just over three, four months, it has went from these inside things to more story focus now. And now I believe that, okay, story is the goal. It's not about a cool insight that nobody knows about and I'm going to deliver it to them. It's more about the new story that they might have not heard about. I love that. I mean, everything is just stories we tell ourselves and the stories are the things that make us remember and latch onto things. And so you can tell someone a fact or a unique insight, but they won't remember it without the story. Definitely. Definitely. Wow. So you have, you, along with Eric, you were teaching entrepreneurship and even back Eric, then- Eric was the teacher. I was just the like guest lecturer. Right. Right. And still back then you guys believe that, or Eric believed that entrepreneurship is being taught in universities just because it's cool. How do you think about that today? Uh, especially during COVID, a lot of people, we had the great resignation, people quit jobs. They were getting into on Twitter, learning from these super smart Twitter threads on entrepreneurship, starting their own thing. How do you think on entrepreneurship right now? The same. It's been the same for me. I, I didn't even really pick this path. I just kind of always has started things and created things. And now it's more, you know, I think more about building teams and scaling things. And how do you think about sustainability and how do you grow them into something that has a global impact? And I kind of, I think about them a little bigger than I used to, uh, but I always try to give myself the mindset of a naivete back to when I was starting and not forget what it was like to get started and really spend a lot of time with um, younger people and people that are on their first startups, et cetera, to never lose that insight. But I think entrepreneurship as a brand is like the worst brand ever because now it's all cool and vogue and colleges think it's a fun thing to teach and the teacher teaching it has never started anything. And it, it's this like cool thing. And to be honest, it's not that cool when you're in it. I love it. It's the way to make impact. I really think it's rewarding as hell. It's so like intense, but can be really fun, really challenging mentally. It's like the most exhilarating thing ever to figure out problems. I love it. It is so hard. And I think when it's just kind of glorified in this, it, you know, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur when it's cool to say you're an entrepreneur, but for most, it's like, it, it's, it's just a, a fun thing. They get to like do, I don't even know how the right way to say it for, I, I don't want it to be that it's just like this, like fun, easy thing. Cause it's not, it's actually really hard. It's really scary. It's really lonely. Um, it drives a lot of like bad addictive behaviors and, uh, you know, stress and stuff like that. And so I just feel like when it's not, spoken about honestly of how hard it is. You don't have the support network and the people around you to really help you do it well and kind of uh, build meaningful companies, but also keep yourself healthy. And so I just, I don't want people to get confused that it's like this, like, cool, everyone's getting rich. Look at everyone starting their own companies. Everyone's got a TikTok. Everyone's got an Instagram. Everyone's got their own company. I feel like there's a lot of that vibe out there. And then the more people say it's easy and how great they're doing, the more I'm skeptical about it. I'll be honest. 
I do took an entrepreneurship class. I was about to do a minors with six back-to-back courses. I loved it. It was fun and it was easy. Uh, it was the best thing I did uh, in terms of fun, uh, in terms of fun vertical. But yeah, I totally agree what you're saying. You also mentioned entrepreneurship is lonely. We definitely hear about that a lot. What was your experience with that? It's funny. I don't think I even realize that when I'm in it. And it's it's just one of those jobs where when you have a lot of people that are relying on you um, and you're, you know, I was the CEO for a long time and the founder um, and, you know, I had co-founders as well. It's hard to, you can't share all your problems with the team because you don't want to scare the team. You want to keep the, you know, the team not feeling everything that's on your mind. You, you, you know, you want to be open and transparent, but you don't want to like overwhelm them or freak them out. Um, and then all the struggles that come into like actually fundraising when you're running out of money and it's really easy to just isolate and, and struggle to tell people that you're actually like super scared and you're really struggling and you're really worried you're going to run out of money and you're really worried you're not gonna be able to pay people and you're really worried it's not working and you'll go to a meeting and you'll be around, you know, some of the biggest leaders in the world pitching these big ideas and everyone's excited. And then you walk out and you're like, you know. I got to go like make this thing happen now. And you always have kind of doubts that, you know, maybe it's not going to work. How do you handle that when you know that you cannot be vulnerable, neither with your team, nor and definitely not with the outsiders. You have to always put on a happy face, a positive, optimistic face, no matter what. I think that's the biggest mis, uh, misconception. I don't think that's true. I used to think that it was my job to make everyone else feel that it was all going great. I think that's how you create bad cultures. And the reality that I've learned is that everyone already knows how it's going. And your inability to share actually makes them doubt you that they think you're not being honest and self-aware that it's not actually working. And great leaders are able to say, you know what, everyone, I want to be open. What we're doing is not working. And I want to be the first to say that I don't think what we're doing is working. But I do think if we change a few things and we try a few things, we can know within three months if it is working. I'll tell you, we have 18 months in the bank. I'm just giving an example. This isn't like where we really are, but I'm saying in the past. And I really want all of you to be here with me and do this. And I truly believe in our mission we're still doing. But I don't want to sit up here and bullshit and be like, everything's fine. We're doing great. We're crushing it. And I did that early in my career. I thought I had to be the mask of goodness. And actually that's when people leave because then they think you're not aware that it's not working. And the smart people, they already know. You're not telling people anything they don't know. And then they start leaving because they think you're delusional because you're saying it's so great when they know it's not. And the key is to actually be able to say what's not working, to find the key insights that lead you to the things that actually make it work better. And that self-awareness and that actual feedback loop and the ability to know what is the key insight that you didn't know and ask the questions to discover what's wrong and really understand how you might be like lying to yourself and actually, oh yeah, no, it's going great. Like you're lying to yourself. This is not going great. And understanding that is how you build great businesses because that is the feedback loop that leads to the actual insights that lead to the team trusting you that leads to your success. And in the early days, I think I used to think that it was the opposite. I used to think I had to go mask it up and tell everyone it's awesome and et cetera. Then I'd go back and then you feel like you're a fraud. You feel like you're a liar. You feel like you're not really kind of able to share that you're actually scared that maybe it's not working as well as you thought, et cetera. Um, and I just think you have to be radically honest on that front and the people will stick by you. That's actually why they stick by you. That makes so much sense. That That is that is truly really true. I believe this is something that I was trying to implement in, I built a dating startup last year and we were trying to do the same thing. We were trying to, we thought that, hey, we are just not hiring the right people. We kept on hiring new people. But at one point we got together, we thought that, hey, we are just not doing this properly. It's not the people we hire, it's maybe us. It's maybe us. So that is really true. I can relate to that. Wow. Uh, all right. So let's get into XMTP. Finally, we are getting into XMTP. So at Assist, you were already into messaging space. When did you start thinking on messaging for Web3? I've been in crypto for about a decade. So I met a guy named Adam Draper, who um, is a pretty well-known VC in the crypto space, one of the first investors in Coinbase, back on a train, funny enough, another train, not, not writing a book, but a train in San Francisco going down to Palo Alto by Stanford, who told me about Bitcoin and kind of told me 
how this future could play out. And I honestly didn't know anything about it. It was one of those ideas where it sounded so sci-fi, but from someone so trusted that I was like, it's either crazy or it's brilliant. And those are kind of the cool ideas I like to be around and think about. And he said, you know what, buy it, hold it for 10 years and it either really works or it's a science experiment and you lose it all. So it doesn't matter. Um, and he got me to start thinking about how this could work and how owning digital assets could work and things like that. And then it really wasn't until, you know, the company got acquired in 2019, right around that time, uh, we started talking to my co-founder now, Matt, and it was really the clubhouse era of 2020 when him and I were hopping on there and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park was actually in clubhouse and he's one of the biggest artists in the world. And at one time in 2015, they had the largest Facebook fan page in the world. And he was saying how NFTs and on-chain audiences could change forever for artists, how they own and have access to their fans because it's not centrally owned by someone who can cut them off. Like Facebook ended up cutting off with the algorithm, their ability to reach any of their fans from their page and then charging them to reach their fans. And he's like, that was like the worst day of our lives because we built up on a single property and we lost our entire audience. And he was just talking about that and the NFTs were happening, DeFi was happening. And all of a sudden you start looking at it and you're like, people can send trillions of dollars from a wallet address to a wallet address, but they can't send an email. They can't send a message. And it was such a glaring, fundamental, obvious thing. But then if you go back through history, utility usually starts and then identity happens. And then right after identity, communication, right? So you have the ability to build a website and you can link it with blue links on the internet. At some point, someone said, why can't I send a message to this website? And emails created, right? So the identity was the URL and the email was the communication mechanism. So wallet addresses are the identity. And I think they're going to be the identity for the next evolution of the web. It's the first time a public-private key pair is actually matched up with something that doesn't feel so, so technical and allows people to actually own their own assets and now own their own communication. And the more we started talking, we started asking other founders and every single person we talked to, including this guy named Robert Leshner, who's the founder of Compound Labs, which is one of the top five DeFi projects in the world. Robert was our first angel investor. And he said to us, hey, I have $11 billion in a smart contract and I can't talk to 95% of the people who own it. Imagine if a bank or a financial product literally couldn't communicate with 95% of the people who own it, but I know the address of every single person. And we're like, huh. And so it just really started to set in that there's a fundamental opportunity to create a protocol at the base layer that allows every wallet address to reach every other wallet address. And our mission next MCP is to ensure people can own and control their communications. The secret though, is doing it in a decentralized way so that all of us are contributing to the protocol together. It's not centrally owned by a, by a monopoly like a Facebook that can control, cut it off, change it, et cetera. And because it's a protocol like um, XMTP, it's almost like SMTP, like email, there can be thousands of different developers building front ends. And so if you use an app and you don't like the app, you can just delete it, get another app, log in with your wallet, and all your messages are there. And the ability to own and control your messaging and take it with you where you want to go and use any application you want to use and kind of take it around the web with you is a fundamental different way to think about communication than it works today. Makes sense. What have you found is different about building this non-financial crypto platform how refreshing <laughs> very refreshing um, definitely yeah for me i I'm, i've never been that big on like speculative things or like you know can i take the DeFi and make money out of money and all this stuff um, i really understand it i respect it i think there's going to be a lot of interesting use cases on that front i'm really excited to be thinking about how do we connect people in more meaningful ways and also for my whole career, I've been working on messaging and to just think about it, I just get to keep working on messaging is actually, I feel so excited about. And so I'm just super stoked to bring communication to a space that I think really needs it um, uh, in a space where there's so much value and impact of people's lives getting done every single day and problems happening all over the place that communication and verified secure communication could really help the space move forward in a safer way. And I think that's what I'm like most excited about. Um, and I think just for anyone you know listening, if you want to get into the Web3 space, but you might be intimidated by it, I think we're a great place to actually like step into that uh, new kind of area of the, of the web because it does look a lot like the past, except it has some new primitives and new ways it works, which are really exciting and cool and kind of where the world's going. Makes sense. Now, because we are coming to the end of the podcast, 
there is something that I wanted to experiment with. So Lex Friedman, he at the end of every podcast, he asks this question that, hey, what is the meaning of life? And I thought that I would never include that podcast or never include that question in my podcast because that just sounds very, not me. But I want to ask you this question. What is the meaning of life for you right now? Or how are you thinking about it? I've been really working on being like my most authentic self. And that can sound like kind of foo-foo, but when you when you spend a lot of time kind of taking off the mask and taking off the different personas you have to play and really doing the work and you know becoming sober, et cetera, you start to realize that a lot of your anxiety and a lot of your imposter syndrome is just these different personas that you actually don't feel competent in. Um, and some of them you do. And then you start to like not know how to deal with them. But if you can start to see them outside of yourself and be more present and authentic with yourself, I think you can build more meaningful relationships being just your authentic you. Um, and just getting to that level of like presence with myself, confidence to be like truly present and meaningful built to build like to be present and build meaningful relationships um and i say meaningful because it was really easy to build tons of relationships everywhere um, the internet has enabled everyone to be connected all over the place and i think you know you can just be like you know you know everyone you know everyone um, but there was a moment about uh four years ago when i ended up in the hospital in the icu for about three weeks and uh, my co-founder really like helped me and took over the company etc and i remember being in the icu and, you know, you feel like you're connected to so many people and you have all these people. Uh, and there's really only like 20 that come visit. And it was one of those moments where you're like, all that matters is the really meaningful relationships we have. And then being able to like work on things that, you know, I do believe communication is the way to connect and help others build meaningful relationships. So to be able to get to work on that as my job and focus on that personally, um, I just always remember sitting there, you know, th you, thinking how lucky I am that these few people showed up, but also like, there's only a few people here that really like came and, you know, I, I could have died. And to think of like the last people you saw and like that group of people is something that I always think about of how do I stay more connected to them? How do I stay more in touch with them? Um, and how do I build more meaningful relationships by spending more time with the people I already love? Shane. This was really good. This was really good. Thank you so much for doing this. I believe this was, yep. At the beginning, you asked that, how can we make this a great interview? I believe it was a great interview, at least for me. But again, I was super conscious because learning from you how to do a great interview. Now I was trying to, I, I definitely didn't go off my script, but I'm trying to, I'm constantly trying to think off the feed that, okay, how should we go? How should we proceed? How should we proceed? But this You're was really, really good, good, man. I think you have a really good knack for this. And, you know, you, you can tell that you were prepared, but you didn't feel the need to talk. And then you, you teed it up in really subtle ways that uh, were great, the, the great teasers. Like you did a really good job. I, like uh, kudos to this, man. Just keep doing it. Thank you so much.